Hey all, Jesse here. We're getting near the end of the year. I wanted to thank you for listening to Bullseye. Making our show isn't easy. We've got a very small staff that works tirelessly to book guests and edit interviews and keep things running smoothly. It is hard work that takes time, money, and effort. It's also incredibly rewarding. When I hear that a guest is an NPR listener already, it means a lot. And it means something to know that you're listening as well. So I'll get to the point. If you want to show your gratitude this holiday season, consider supporting the NPR member station in your area. Any amount. It's the single most effective way to keep shows like Bullseye going. It'll make a huge difference to public radio in your community. It makes a huge difference to us, too. To get started with your donation to an NPR member station, visit donate.npr.org bullseye. Or just text the word bullseye to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. I want you to think back to when you were a kid. What was that one present you got around the holidays that you remember the best? The one you dreamed about getting and then finally got? We put that question to Mickey Dolenz, the drummer for the Monkees, and he didn't hesitate. I think it probably was a Lionel train set, a big one, the original full size. And my dad, who who was very handy with building stuff, he built me a a big platform uh, in the garage where the train set would, you know, be set up. Well, back then, uh, you know, it was still uh, steam powered. <laughs> it was, we had to actually put real coal in the, in the engine. It's bullseye. This week, it's a very special bullseye holiday bonanza. You'll hear more from Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees about his favorite holiday memories. He'll also talk about the band's Christmas album. Mickey grew up listening to Christmas music, but he didn't love it at first. Yeah, not necessarily because I wanted to, but that's, that's what they put on. Because when you're a kid, your parents run the machine, right? And we're just getting warmed up. We also got sage Christmas advice from the Brothers McElroy. You could uh, toss your keys in with your present. Just have everybody do that. And I think that would probably spice things up. Plus, soul singer Cy Smith tells us about the holiday song that changed her life. And more. It's all coming up on the Bullseye Holiday Spectacular. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up on our Holiday Spectacular, Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. The Monkees was, of course, a television show. It aired from 1966 to 1968. It was a Hollywood version of A Hard Day's Night. Four lovable goofs in a band playing songs, bumming around Los Angeles, solving mysteries, staying in haunted houses. The band members, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolenz, weren't a band before the show started. They auditioned for the part, and most of them didn't really play instruments. But they had some very legit hits. Don't be slow. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. 
So it's not a real surprise that the band lasted a lot longer than the show. They learned their instruments, started writing their own songs, the whole deal. When I talked with Mickey last year, they just recorded their 13th studio album, Christmas Party. It's a holiday record chock full of standards and covers, even a few originals. It's also got contributions from Rivers Cuomo, Peter Buck, and more. Mickey Dolenz is the band's drummer and one of the singers as well. Here's the lead track on the album, featuring Mickey on lead vocals. It's called Unwrap You at Christmas. Dolans, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. I am such a big fan of you, your show, uh, actually all of NPR. Uh, I even did a challenge a couple of years ago. Big, uh, big challenge. Uh, I'm a huge fan. So, so nice to be here with you. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. I have an important question for you. Do you are Do you like Christmas? Are you a Christmas person? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, born and raised in the in the valley of uh, uh, L.A., not in a huge religious sense. Just celebrating the uh, equinox, I guess. <laughs> celebrating, you know, winter and and uh, and all that. Um, but yeah, we always had a big, big Christmas. Do you have fond memories of Christmas when you were a kid? Oh, of course, yeah. Wow. Is it, was it in the Valley? Was it like a, the most classic uh, yeah. 1950s suburban Christmas imaginable? Yes, absolutely. Hit the nail on the head. My mom, uh, we had this huge picture window looking out over the, the backyard. A small house, but nice big picture window. Um, she would do a in, incredible painting. She was quite a great artist and she would do some incredible uh, christmas actually she did it at easter also and you know other moments and she would do this beautiful uh, uh you know what do you call it not graffiti <laughs> a big painting you know on the window and then with you know poster paint and then wash it off oh yeah so we we actually had very very classic uh uh, American graffiti Christmases um, and Halloweens and Thanksgivings and you know all that stuff. Yeah, very did Norman you, Rockwell. Did you listen to Christmas music at Christmas time when you were a kid? Yeah, I, not necessarily because I wanted to, but that's <laughs> that's what they put on because when you're a kid, your parents run the machine, right? Well, I mean, some of that stuff is some of that stuff is really good, especially at that time. I oh, mean, it's you wonderful. can't argue with. With your uh, with your Nat King Coles and your you know the crooners made some really great Christmas music. Oh no, no! And funny you should mention him because he is one of my favorite. Um, my influences vocally, uh, musically, uh, were people like Nat King Cole, uh, Johnny Mathis, who I just met actually. Um, you know the Sinatra, I, who I did meet. Uh, yeah, my influences were um, were all that stuff and. Um, yeah, I love um, love all that stuff. What was the best Christmas present you ever got as a kid? 
Ooh, wow, great question. I think it probably was a Lionel train set, a big one, the original bull size, you know, mass. I don't know what gauge it was, but uh, and my dad, who who was very handy with building stuff, he built me a a big platform uh, in the garage where the train set would, you know, be set up. So that was probably it, a big Lionel, a full gauge. I don't know what they're called now, but. Um, uh, probably a train set. That was probably in. Did you get involved in all the mechanics of it? That was like the dawn of computer programming was people who were really into switching their train sets. Well, back then, uh, you know, it was still uh, steam-powered. <laughs> it was. We had to actually put real coal in the in the engine. Um, I've always been very, very uh, into building stuff. I have a, actually a, a, a woodworking furniture company with my daughter called Dolan's and Daughters Fine Furniture, and we, we make handmade, uh, uh, real high-end kind of custom furniture stuff in a, w- a workshop that I have. I've always been into it. My dad was, and over the years, I, I got into it even deeper and deeper, and um, and now I have this business, and um, I, I do it for the love of it, you know. And I was going to be an architect. That was my plan. Really? Because you started acting as a kid. I mean, both your folks were actors, if right. I'm remembering correctly. Did Was that like the family business, or was that something they were trying to keep you away from? No, quite the contrary. It was the fam- family business. Um my dad was an actor, quite successful. My mom was a singer-actress until she started having kids, and then uh, uh, she became a stay-at-home mom, which, thank goodness for us, uh, uh, of course, um, it was wonderful. Um, uh, but my dad did real well, uh, uh, signed to Howard Hughes, uh, of all people, for a while. And um, I, I had my first television series when I was 10. Uh, it was called Circus Boy. It was on NBC, um, a national, you know, big network show in the 50s, about 1955, around that time of Rin Tin Tin and F- Flick and Fury and all that, and um, did very well. We ran uh, two or three seasons until I kind of outgrew the part. And then my parents very wisely and by the way, they had never pushed me into it. We weren't that kind of Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, which is fine for some. You know, eyes and teeth, honey, eyes and teeth. Um, I was brought up in the valley and in a very rural uh, suburban environment. You know, I would come home from shooting on the set and my father would say, you have to clean the pool. Um, had horses on the property and, you know, things like that. So uh, uh, he was from Italy, off the boat from Italy, and my mom was from Texas, so they were kind of no-nonsense people and and didn't let me get away with, uh, well, I was going to say but I won't because... (laughs) (laughs) Because you know what a classy operation I'm running here. (laughs) So, no, um, they never, I don't ever remember being, you know, pushed and hassled, you know, any sort of uh, uh, pressure at all. Did you like it? I mean, was it something that you really wanted? No, I followed in my father's footsteps. But how could you not like, you know, being... Well, that series, Circus Boy, was this kid, uh, the... The spine of it uh, was that 
it was an orphan kid at the turn of the century who'd been adopted by a clown in a circus. And they took care of him, and he turned out being the one that would also solve the, you know, save the day. So I'm living for three years. I basically, I was living as a, a ten or twelve year old kid in a circus at the turn of the century. I mean, how can you not like that? I mean, with an al- and animals, I learned to ride an elephant, and in fact, that was the first thing they said to me. They said. Uh, uh, okay, well, you know you're going to have to ride an elephant. And I said, okay, where do I start? <laughs> it's like... kind of like when I got the monkeys. They said, well, you're going to be the drummer. I said, okay, where do I start? <laughs> we have a clip of Circus Boy, uh, the show in which you starred uh, as a pre-adolescent, or I guess an adolescent. It was, as you mentioned, about a young man whose parents were killed in a trapeze accident your character was named Corky, right? adopted by Joey the Clown, right. played by the late Noah Beery Jr. And in this scene, Corky is the water boy to Bimbo, the baby elephant that we've discussed. And uh, in this clip, uh, Corky, uh, Corky is there with Bimbo and Joey. Bimbo! You've got to brush your teeth after every meal! Because if you ever got a toothache, that'd be too bad. Hey, Corky, have, have you seen JoJo anyplace? Gosh, Uncle Joy, is he loose again? Oh, you know, I, I, he figured out how to open up his cage all by himself. <laughs> uh, half the time, I can't tell who's training who. Here, I've been trying to make a clown out of that monkey, and he's making a monkey out of me. Oh, he'll make a good clown, Uncle Joy. Well, I was teaching him how to put on his own makeup, and you're wagging him. Uh-oh. Let's go, let's go. Oh, you're so cute. <laughs> I like that. I, I like your line delivery. I mean, it is the classicest 1956 uh, right. child on a television show line delivery like, gee whiz! <laughs> Yeah, absolutely right. I ended up doing a lot of voiceovers in the 70s over cartoons, and it was that same kind of thing. You know, it was I was like always the kid named Skip doing Hanna-Barbera cartoons going, Whoa, no, look out, here we go. Whoa. <laughs> Tell me where you were in your life when you got the part on The Monkees. I had uh, gone back to high school after Circus Boy. My parents very wisely took me out of the business. Um, I had been offered another show, they told me years later. Um, but I was turning 13, going into puberty, and I, they sent me to a child psychologist. They said it was an educational counselor, but looking back now, I know it was a shrink uh, with Rorschach and all that. And I guess, you know, he must have said, you must take this child out of the business immediately. <laughs> uh, because as we've heard, the horror stories, um, the, the problems come with child stars uh, after the fact, not during. Uh, during the, uh, the, the, you know, during the success, you're you're glorified, they love you, everybody loves you, and you're taken care of, cosseted. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're a has-been. Um, you're out of work, and uh, you're just entering puberty, which is tough enough as it is. 
But now you're not only entering puberty, but you're a has-been <laughs> entering puberty. And my parents, I don't know, uh, they just wisely, I guess with the aid of this uh, child psychologist, said, no, we're not going to let him do another show. He's going back to school, public school, right off of the set. And I literally, one morning, one Monday morning, ended up back in junior high school, what they called it then, as a ninth grader, um, with my roots, my brown roots growing out from my blonde bleached hair from the TV series. And so they threw me right back into the real world. And then after high school, I went to college doing uh, anthropology, psychology, a couple of other... I got into science, you know, I got into electronics and uh, was really getting into science and building stuff. And I, you know, my father then passed away uh, a year after I got out of high school, which did present some problems, obviously. And I was at, at a bit of a loose end. Um, I would be doing little guest shots. Uh, I had an agent, and the agent would get me a little job on Peyton Place or Mr. Novak or one of these uh, late 50s, early 60s shows. And, and, um, but my but that wasn't my plan. I you know I I was doing it kind of for summer money, and a friend of mine said, you know, we both like building stuff, which I we did both of us, and you know I had a workshop even then, and he said, let's be architects and start a little architectural firm. So, I uh, enrolled into L.A. Trade Tech. Uh, I just got an honorary award, uh, not award, what do you call it, honorary degree from, from them. I did about a year and a half, uh, two, three semesters. But in the summers, when when I wasn't you know, going to school, I would do these little TV shows and, um, you know, guest shots. And But I wasn't stupid. I mean, I knew the power of showbiz. I'd had a series. I knew how, you know, valuable and and, and important and life-changing it can be. And so one pilot season uh, in 1965 comes along. And um, my agent, I had an agent, and um, I was going to school every day. And he would say, "Uh, hey, I got an audition for you, 3 o'clock on Thursday, blah, blah, blah. Some I would go to, some I would say, I'm sorry, I got a test, <laughs> and I didn't. Um, so the monkey audition uh, comes along. I did, even at the time, sort of since this was kind of different, uh, especially in the fact that you had to be able to sing and play and act uh, to get into the audition or get through it. Um, uh, so clearly they must have had in mind at the time that they were going to kind of, cre- you know, create this sort of, you know, real uh, musical entity, I guess. Um, my audition piece on guitar was Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. I, I still do it to this day. Um, and then there was acting and scene study and improv. And the improv I had the most trouble with. Uh, mostly un- uncomfortable, uh, and I am still to this day um, uh, with improv because I was raised, you know, to learn the script, read the lines, and show up and do the scene and go home. And th- so the audition process was quite uh, extensive. Uh, but my agent calls and says, uh, "You got the pilot." But and I was in school studying to be an architect, and I said, "Great!" And I took off ten days to do the pilot. 
And then I went back to school because I knew that nine out of 10 pilots just don't sell. And I wasn't going to take a chance. So I went back to school studying to be an architect. And uh, then when uh, we got the order for the first season, the 26 episodes of the first season, I then I decided I better quit school. More of the Bullseye Holiday special still to come. Stay with us. Cy Smith, the McElroy brothers, and other stuff. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Today Ticks. Use Today Ticks to find theater and arts tickets for the night of or months in advance. With Today Ticks, getting tickets is a fast, easy process. With a constantly updated list of performances from theater and arts to comedy and opera, you'll discover both the things you weren't looking for and the shows you already know you'll love. Try Today Ticks now by going to todayticks.com slash bullseye and use promo code bullseye to get $10 off your first purchase. We're wrapping up 2019 on Pop Culture Happy Hour by looking at everything we saw and heard this year and choosing just 15 favorite things. Could be a song, a moment, a movie, anything we think is the best of the best of the year. Here are picks on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host When Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. These are really hard questions. They are really hard questions. I don't have any answers for that. I don't either. Sack of garbage. No. The end of the show will just be five minutes of Biz and Teresa crying and screaming until the outro is played. So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Find us on MaximumFun.org, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Bullseye Holiday Special. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here right now with Mickey Dolenz. He's a singer and drummer for the Monkees. When we talked last year, the band had just put out their first ever holiday album. It's called Christmas Party. Let's listen to another song from it. This one's called What Would Santa Do? I have a clip from uh, the TV show, The Monkees, and uh, it's from an episode called The Monkees Watch Their Feet, in which uh, you, Mickey, are abducted by aliens. Um, in a classic monkey storyline. Yeah. Uh, so we're about to hear you. You are on, a, you've been beamed onto a flying saucer. You are then cloned by the uh, blue, blue-skinned captain and his assistant, then your evil evil robot double is unleashed back into the world to spy on the other monkeys, Peter Tork and, and Michael Nesmith. Right. Let's take a listen. Hey, Mickey, isn't that a spaceship over there? No, it's the powerfully 
persuasive argument of the space alien. What does a spaceship look like? Well, I don't know. I never saw one before. Then how do you know it is a spaceship? He's right, man. Probably some new drive-in. The only way to recognize an alien is to take note of strange behavior. Just take some notes on this next scene. Hello, Lenny. I'm here in enemy head headquarters. They have harmonic destructors here, like we do on Vladika when they use them. They terrible and ah, horrible sounds. They also have insufferable tortures here on Earth. Whenever a pussycat cries, they tear off its head. Definitely not. Then they holler in its ear. Right. And then they put the head back on the body. I don't know how it stays alive. Mickey? Mickey, who are you talking to just then? No one. Well, well you're acting very strange, you know. I'm not acting strange, I'm acting perfectly normal. There's nothing strange about me. <laughs> Don't tear off that cat's head again, I can't stand it. It is a lot of nonsense for a television show in the mid-1960s. Oh, boy, a lot. But, you know, uh, interesting you should say that. If you look back, and I've studied it, I've done lectures now, people have asked me, you know, for years, you know, what was it? How was it? How did it happen? It it wasn't that... Um, if you look back, it, it really wasn't that... Um, I don't know, what's the word? Um, uh I guess uh, uh, surprising because the producers had made some very clever early on decisions when they were doing their Bible, uh, which is the, the essence of, of a show. For starters, and funnily enough, I was just listening to an interview you did with Eric Idle, who I know I've known for years, and he was talking about Monty Pythons, and he mentioned how the humor was not topical. The monkey's humor was not topical, nor was it satirical. And I think that's one of the reasons why The Monkees and Monty Python <laughs> and I Love Lucy <laughs> and other shows um, stand up for so long because they're not topical. And that was a, a conscious decision that the producers made. We're not going to talk about anything in the news this week. We're not going to do anything too satirical. Uh, it was uh, another friend of mine. Uh, a guy named John Lennon. Oh, did I drop that name? I, oh. I'll grab it for I you. I got it. Um, who said the monkeys were like the Marx Brothers. And if you look at the monkeys show, the project, the whole thing, as this sort of half-hour Marx Brothers musical movie on television, everything makes a whole lot more sense. If you think of an old Marx Brothers movie where everybody ran around and, and danced and sang and had a plot and there was a bad guy and a good guy and people were doing silly stuff and, you know, that scene you just played could have been right out of a Marx Brothers movie. We were screened Marx Brothers movies during the preparation process, for instance. So it was not coincidental. I mean, uh, there was some thought put behind this that the show would not be topical. It would not be satirical because that would date it very quickly. Um, and also, a very important point, I think, is that the monkeys were never successful. It was the struggle for success, because that, that, I think, is what it endeared it to all those kids around the world, um, was that we represented all those kids in their garages, in their basements, in their kitchens, you know, wherever, in their garage, trying to be the Beatles. And that is essentially what the Monkey Show is about. This band that wanted to be the Beatles. And on the television show, we never made it. It was always the struggle 
for success that that I think is, like I say, one of the things that endeared it to so many people. Did you want to be uh, lovable Marx brothers and goofballs, or did you want to be cool rock stars when the possibility that you actually maybe could be cool rock stars uh, came up? In my case, it was I woke up one day and I fell asleep one night as a working actor, entertainer, singer, you know, musician, because I had to do all that. And I woke up in the morning as a cool rock star. (laughs) And I I was like, whoa, when did that happen? Um, It's kind of exemplified in a story I've told a bunch of times. Um, During the the show went on the air in uh, September of 26. <laughs> what 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 century are we in here? Uh, in the uh, in September of '66, uh, and um, uh, we'd been filming since June or July, and recording, of course, all the time, day and night. I was doing most of the lead uh, singing, so I would go on the set from seven in the morning to seven at night, and then have dinner, and then go into the studio and record. Uh, a vocal sometimes two or three a night and um because they needed so much material for the um for the television show and um <clears throat> one uh and then that uh that christmas that uh this time that year 66 uh, they gave us a hiatus to um the show had been on the air since september we'd heard that it was doing very well we'd heard that clarksville had gone to number one but we're working 12, 14 hours a day. In those days, of course, uh, without social media and all that other kind of stuff, you know, I'd get in my car in the parking lot and drive home and never see anybody, never interact. The fans didn't know where we were or how to, found, how to find us, you know, if you just went home. And that Christmas, I um, was uh, going to drive up to San Jose where my parents and family lived at the time with my Christmas presents and have about a week or 10 days, whatever it was, off and a little hiatus. So I get my little Christmas list together and I get in my car and I drive down to the local mall there in the valley in Los Angeles where I'd shopped every year for decades with my family. And I get out of my car with my little list and I walk through the big glass doors and all of a sudden people come running at me screaming. And I thought it was a fire. (laughs) And I'm holding open the door going, slow down, don't run, don't panic. It's I literally did think it was a fire and they were running at me. And I I had to leave. I was really pissed off. I had to go and give my Christmas list to my roadie and have him go do the shopping. Got in my car and had to go home. Well, that was the first inkling that I had of, of what was going on. I mean, it sounds neat, but it also sounds hard. Oh, it was a lot of work. Oh, boy. Each episode took three days and then start the next one the very next day. And then we started rehearsing for uh, the the concert tour because they obviously had in mind that that if this thing happened, they wanted us to be able to play or they would not have cast people that could. They wouldn't have bothered. They would have just cast actors and done it all, everything else, uh, you know, kind of old school. 
They clearly had in mind that they wanted, they hoped, that if if um, th- the thing happened, if if the show went, that we would uh, go on the road and and uh, record. Uh, I mean, and uh, sorry, and perform. And sure enough, you know, we did. And we, our first concert was in Hawaii, in Honolulu. At the HIC Auditorium, I don't know how many thousands of people were there. And I think that their plan was, well, if we do it in Hawaii and it doesn't work, no one will know. We'll have three (laughs) weeks before news reaches the mainland. That's right. But it did. uh, And it was huge. Mike Nesmith, I think, put it very, very uh, succinctly uh, once. He said, you know, at that point, Pinocchio became a real little boy. Mickey Dolans, thanks so much for being on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Well, I hope that was okay for you guys. Thank you. When the snowman brings the snow Well, he just might like to know He's put a great big smile on somebody's face Mickey Dolans. The Monkey's Holiday album is called Christmas Party. It's out now. Here's one more song from it called I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, a cover of the 1973 glam rock holiday hit. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's our annual Bullseye Holiday Spectacular this week. When the holidays roll around, we love to get some pertinent advice from our friends, the McElroy brothers. Justin, Travis, and Griffin are the hosts of the smash hit podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me, right here at Maximum Fun. They have joined me from their various disparate points across this great nation. Travis, Griffin, Justin, welcome back to the show. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. you, I treasure this. It's my favorite Christmas tradition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've been doing it since we were toddlers actually jesse a, a teenager a local mm-hmm. teen would come into our home that's right jesse's 55 years old he would come to our home yes and ask us for holiday advice i mean imagine I, I it's been my holiday tradition for many years to travel the nation gathering questions for this even back when i was a teen yes that's why they called him jesse question seed you would <laughs> just travel the countryside collecting questions here's something from i didn't keep the receipt So, I got my boyfriend a Polaroid camera for Christmas, and it's already neatly wrapped and underneath the tree. However, today he told me he's planning to buy that same camera for himself. How do I convince him not to buy the camera without letting it slip that that's what I got him? Uh, Last year, I thought to get my wonderful niece, Charlie, this little, like, kid's camera. So I called my older brother, Justin. I said, Justin... Does she have this? And he said, no, of course not. And then when we arrived at their home for Christmas, she totally did. Um, So now it's going to be a future present from my daughter. So maybe you could re-gift this camera to somebody else. Or, I don't know, just say like, hey, don't buy that because Santa. That's the traditional approach, yes. Don't buy anything because Santa. Have you guys tried using the Santa excuse with your romantic partners? Unfortunately, Santa can't bring the one thing my wife wants for Christmas, which uh, she's, I've got her uh, little note to Santa right here. It says uh, she wants just like a second, please, just one second. <laughs> and you've only got two, right, Justin? We have two children, which is so many. Try upgrading by 50%, my friend. Now, Jesse, I can't repeat your mistakes. That's why the older generation is there for my generation to learn from them. <laughs> 
You ever seen that movie Misery? Because I feel like that could be a great solution to this problem. <laughs> like tie what? your boyfriend down, break his legs so he doesn't go buy a Polaroid. But Griffin, you're forgetting about one thing. Hmm? Amazon.com. Also, he kills her at the end. <laughs> so <that's laughs> okay. Well, I guess you're forgetting about two things. Though. Yeah. Return the camera. Get a tiny scanner. So they, he can make those pictures relevant to this year in which we live, 2018 AD. Oh, no, but Justin, what if the question asker returns the camera and gets a tiny scanner, but then the boyfriend doesn't buy a camera and instead, I guess, also gets a tiny scanner? Oh, oh Henry. Okay, here's something from All I Want for Christmas is Tunes in Texas. I love Christmas I, music. I want a Zoom to go with my Polaroid camera and... <laughs> And I hope they got the wood grain. I love Christmas music, and I broke out my Christmas playlist at 12.01 a.m. on November 1st this year. Wow. Wow. My girlfriend, however, does not like Christmas music because she's worked in retail for so long and had to hear it all day, every day during the Christmas season. How do I convince her to get on board or at least to tolerate my Christmas jams. I have found, if you are willing to dig a little deeper, there's a great movie about this called Jingle Bell Rocks, about the vast loads of Christmas music that have not uh, become wildly overplayed over the years. And if you dig a little deeper, there's some fantastic Christmas music, holiday music, however you want to slice it, that is out there that has not been just like done to death. That's still very excellent. It's just like not completely 1000% overplayed like like some of the classics. The director of that film is a past Bullseye guest. You can listen to a past Bullseye holiday special to- Here he know. goes. Oh, just, God, Jesse, just like one segment without it. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on. You know what I want for Christmas? Less wild self-promotion. <laughs> I, want, I want you to be mindfully present in this segment. Thank you. I tell you what they're not blasting over the PA at Barnes and Noble is traditional, nearly ancient Christmas hymns. Get some of those going in there. I'm talking about these five stanza babies. <laughs> oh yeah. You can also go deeper into the uh, the classics to get to some of the verses that maybe we don't always get to. Do you know this is an actual verse? I was recently reading the lyrics of Jingle Bells. This is an actual verse. Oh, it gets Buck Wild. A day or two ago, the story I must tell. I went out on the snow, and on my back I fell. A jet was riding by in a one horse open sleigh. He laughed as there I sprawling lie, but quickly drove away what <laughs> excuse yeah, me cruel. you had an america's funniest home video in the middle of jingle bells all these years and nobody anyways knew. merry christmas i guess <laughs> that's how dr atkins died that's not funny <laughs> apparently it is to justin it's kind of funny <laughs> here's something from santa's future stepson was mommy really kissing Santa Claus, or was it just their partner dressed as Santa? <laughs> Last year, I listened to the holiday classic, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, and had a realization that the reason Daddy didn't see Mommy tickle Santa was because Daddy was Santa. When I brought my findings to my friends, they said I was wrong, and it really was Santa that Mommy had smooched above his beard so snowy white. Who is Mommy kissing? Is Santa real and a homewrecker, or is Mommy just into Santa play? Are they kidding? No, I, I, you can't say definitively whether daddy is Santa, but I think we can all agree that Santa is daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Griffin has hit upon the possible third option here. 
<laughs> Santa Claus is your dad. Yeah. In this song, this, oh, this I, I was doing. I was out. saying it. In the, I was saying it in the internet sex way, but yeah, in a sexual manner. I, in a sexual manner, that's possible. Santa is a major daddy. We can all agree on this. There's no argument here. I'm oh, saying that yeah, maybe yeah, this yeah. song is from the perspective of uh, a Fred Claus or an Arthur Christmas or an Arthur Christmas. Thank you, Travis, who finds out that he is in fact Santa's son. Oh, okay. Okay, here's the pitch. I call the movie, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Uh, a boy doesn't know his father. His father's never been around. Oh, what's that? His father's Santa. Green light, green light, green light. I'm thinking uh, 15 mil. Uh, get back to me. Let me know what you think. Was green light, green light, green light a series of green lights in different media? Yes. Film, television, full motion video gaming? It was film, television, and McDonald's toys. Did you all know that uh, a live action version of this film was adapted in 2002 starring <laughs> Connie Selica and Corbin Brunson? Swear to God. Hand right. God. They did a whole movie. It blows my mind to even consider that this song, <laughs> it, that it's not the person stabbed. After a boy sees a man in Santa Claus suit kissing his mother, he thinks that the real Santa wants to replace his father, so he goes to prank war with him. What? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Hell yeah. Excuse me? How does that last longer than, say, one prank? Are you kidding me? That's a verse of the song I hadn't heard. Yeah, apparently it's a prank war with Santa. <laughs> man, I will say this. Santa Claus, when he does his job in your house, makes himself vulnerable pretty much the entire time he's in there. Yeah. I mean, his ingress is a, like, pit of fire. There's a lot of easy ways to kill Santa. I've thought about this a lot. A strange note to end on, but <laughs> here we are. Here's something from Distressed in D.C. Last year, when flying home, I was stopped at airport security because I had a wrapped gift in my carry-on bag. After being cleared as no threat to national security, I remarked to my girlfriend that it was weird they stopped me for that. She said, everyone knows you can't bring a wrapped gift through security. I disagree. My question is, why aren't wrapped gifts allowed? Surely they can still see through them with their x-ray machines. <laughs> uh, uh, emphasis mine. I'm not using lead-lined gift wrap. Please help me understand so I can put this behind me. Are they checking it? <laughs> Are they checking the wrapped gift? It's carry, carry on. They explicitly do say that. Okay, good. I mean, this is the same sort of organization that thinks the pouches of applesauce I try to bring onto the plane is actually two guns. So <laughs> let's not start bringing reason into it now. I think the reason that the TSA doesn't like it is they see it and they think, oh, a present for me. And then oh. you're like, oh, I'm taking this with me. And they're like, no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here's something from No Jolly in This Holly in Tacoma, Washington. Every year, we do a gift exchange on Christmas, but it's the same boring draw-the-numbers-pick-a-gift deal every year. Any suggestions on how to mix up a holiday gift exchange so people don't just <laughs> fall straight to sleep when it's announced? Well, you could uh, toss your keys in with your present. <laughs> just have everybody do that. And I think that would probably spice things up. Here's what you do. Everybody brings two gifts, one gift 
is worth a lot of money and mm. one gift is worth very little money. And then you build a big bonfire in the middle of the room and everyone has to pick one of the gifts and the other one at random gets thrown into the bonfire and yes. only the person who brought the, the presents knows. Oh, that's good. What about something with an element of danger? Ooh. What about a deadly creature, for example? Yeah, I, I mean, like that. What about just a fight to the death where say you have 30 people and you only have 29 gifts? That could be fun. You could go with a classic that Arnani used to try to employ, lotto tickets, because you don't know how good of a gift it is or how bad. It's just a scratcher. You don't know. Mm. Luck of the draw. <laughs> Schrodinger's <laughs> gift. Justin, it sounded like you were trying to start a chant at a sporting event. Yeah, I didn't lotto catch on, though. Lotto tickets. Um, I like Jesse's idea. I think just load these things up chock-a-block full of asps, and I know a guy. <laughs> Is it Mark Antony? I can get you five asps by the afternoon. You got a guy? You got an asp oh, guy? Yeah, you yeah, got to have an asp guy. Come on. He prefers he's more of an asp man. <laughs> okay, here's something from Sad Weeb in San Diego. Every year, my parents ask my siblings and I to make Christmas lists. My problem is, I'm a very big anime fan, and all I really- End of question. <laughs> and all I really want for Christmas is anime merchandise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> However, one year, I put an anime figurine on my list. My mom just glanced at it and said, you don't need that, and then didn't buy it. Boo! <laughs> Boo, mom! Ever since then, I keep putting figurines on my list in hopes of them getting it for me, but to no avail. Help me, brothers. How do you convince my parents that a tasteful figurine of Viktor Nikiforov from my favorite anime, Yuri on Ice, <laughs> is more important than socks or an ugly Christmas sweater? Uh, that the, the, the title of that show is stylized with an exclamation point in there. And Jesse, I have to thank you for really, uh, really voicing that. I'm a professional, Griffin. I think that what you do is when you hand over the list, it's only got one thing on it. And that's the figurine of Victor Nikiforov. And then when they're like, no, you just stand your ground and you don't take the list act. And if they try to get you anything else, you build the bonfire. Get some asps. That's a terrible idea, Travis. I don't know how he's supposed to play pretend with just one of the Yuri on Ice figures. He can't make them do any, reenact any of their great fights or uh, ice <laughs> or skating dance, dances. dances. Or any, here's the thing. My email address is justin at mabimbam.com. <laughs> email me, and I will buy you whatever anime figure you want. Don't rely on your family anymore. Rely on me, Justin McElroy. Justin's your family now. I'm your family now, and I'm going to buy you an anime figure this year. Congratulations. Justin at mabimbam.com. Email me. I will buy you. And this goes for anybody who sent in this question that is this person. Well, I will buy you an anime figure of your choice. Hey, what happened to Justin? Oh, he's broke now. Yeah. Broke now, brought, bought 10,000 Yuri on Ice. No, figures. just this one person. If someone else has this exact same problem and send in this exact same question, letter for letter, I will also buy them an anime figurine. I don't want to leave anybody out. Justin, I had the same problem, but it was with the original Yuri before they put it on ice. <laughs> okay. Yuri on the rocks. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, I think you can do a limited list, but put your Yuri on Ice figure on it, and then the only other thing on the list is a big bag of drugs. Mm. It can just say, two pounds of any drug of your choice, mother, and then it's up to them about the path you're going to walk. Get it? Get two things. One, an anime figurine. The second thing you want is grandpa poison. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Justin, Griffin, Travis, I sure appreciate you uh, taking the time to answer all these questions on the Bullseye Holiday Special. Have you guys got big holiday plans this year for My Brother, My Brother and Me? This is actually it. This is kind of the capstone for me. I mean, I think that maybe Justin and I and Griffin and I might see each other this year, exchange exchange presents. Um, I think a few of our closest friends are going to come to our Candlelight show in Huntington. Um, but I think that's about it. I think that's about all we have planned. We're gonna uh, we're doing our annual charity fundraiser, mabimbamangels.com, If you want to help buy gifts uh, and items for people in our area, less fortunate folks in our area, uh, we would sure appreciate that too. So you can find that at mbmbamangels.com. That's right. Well, thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. The piano music you're hearing right now is by our friend Brent Weinbach, by the way. He is a professional stand-up comedian, one of the funniest there is, a genuine, brilliant genius of stand-up comedy. He also, for many years, was a professional piano player. In fact, I, I think that he was one of those piano players who plays the giant grand piano in the Nordstrom department store. Anyway, he has a collection of Christmas songs that he recorded on his piano at home. It's called Christmas Piano, and it's available to listen to pretty much anywhere you go streaming-wise. So here's comedian Brent Weinbach tickling the ivories in a distinctly not funny manner. More from the Bullseye Holiday Special after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Behind the Irishman, the official companion podcast for Netflix's new film, The Irishman. Co-star and comedian Sebastian Maniscalco pulls back the curtain on how the film was made with director Martin Scorsese and co-stars Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci sharing their experiences filming the crime drama. Behind the Irishman is available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, with new episode drops every Monday. Hi, it's me, Paula Poundstone. And it's me, Adam Felber. We have a podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. It's a comedy podcast where we bring on experts to teach us stuff we need to know. And by the way, the guy who came to tell us what to do when you encounter a bear never showed up. Anyway, it's fun. You are guaranteed laughs in every episode. You can't really guarantee laughs. What if somebody doesn't laugh? We'll get sued. Join us for our next episode where we have an expert in consumer law explain to us how to defend ourselves against one humorless litigious shut-in with enough time on their hands to sue us over our unfulfilled claim of guaranteed laughs in every episode here at MaximumFun.org. The Cat of the Week is Mabel from Green Bank, West Virginia. Hey, it's Jesse. The year is drawing to a close, and remember that now is the perfect time to give to your local NPR member station. You can make a difference in your community. Keep public radio going by giving at donate.npr.org bullseye. Again, that's donate.npr.org bullseye. And thanks. The NBC sitcom Friends turned 25 this year, and it's still here. Right now, it's one of Netflix's biggest shows. But does it hold up? 
the greatest failure, I think, of the show is that it's not funny. What our enduring relationship with friends says about us. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. One more treat for you on the Bullseye Holiday Special, a segment we like to call The Song That Changed My Life. It's a chance for musicians, artists, and other creators to tell us about the music that makes them who they are. This time, we're thrilled to welcome Cy Smith. Cy Smith is a brilliant singer, songwriter, and producer who lives here in Los Angeles. She's been recording soul records for over a decade, and she's collaborated with folks like Kamasi Washington and Thundercat. She's also an incredibly talented backup singer. Name a great, she sung with them. Sheila E., Shaka Khan, Usher, Whitney Houston. When we talked with her last year, she'd just dropped a fun seasonal EP. It's called Christmas in Cyberspace. That's cyberspace with an S, by the way, like Cy, Cy Smith. When we asked her about the album and if any of the songs on it had a good story we could talk with her about on the show, she talked about my favorite things. And boy, she did not let us down. So we won't waste any more time before we get into it. Take it away, Cy. The first time I heard my favorite things was in the movie The Sound of Music, of course. Raindrops on roses. And whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. I think the first time I saw The Sound of Music, I was about six or seven years old. I was in my mother's bedroom watching it on TV uh, in our apartment in Hillcrest Heights, Maryland. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. You know, that melody caught my ear because it was such a distinct melody. Um, As a child, that melody just sounded like a dance to me. It just sounded like... It just sounded like a dance. (laughs) If a dance could sing, that's what it would sound like. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so Even on paper, when you look at it, it looks like a dance, you know. Um, And the things that she was singing about were quite abstract to me, you know, cream-colored ponies. And, you know, like, I I didn't know anything that she was talking about. I didn't know what a schnitzel was. But that melody made me want to know, you know. So the next time that I heard my favorite things and it really sort of changed my life was when um, I might have been about eight or nine. 
I had an aunt, my aunt Bobby in Teaneck, New Jersey. She had a little radio in the kitchen and the Coltrane version came on the radio. I didn't recognize it as my favorite things, but she began singing it on top of the Coltrane version. And that's when it sort of resonated with me. That's when I went, wait, that's that song from the movie. I hadn't seen the movie repeatedly, so I didn't walk around singing the soundtrack of, you know, The Sound of Music. But when she sang it, it just reminded me of that song. And all of a sudden, I don't know, like it made sense to me. Do you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden, all of those sort of abstract concepts made sense. Like, oh, wow, I can just think of something that I really like and anything that's frightening me will go away. I wasn't listening to jazz at all when I was a kid. And that was the thing. When she started singing this on top of this, it made all of a sudden jazz accessible to me. I think at that point, jazz was just sort of, you know, music that that older people listened to. It wasn't something that I would go and put on the record player, you know. But when she started singing it, I was like, oh, jazz is something that you can sing along to. Jazz is something that, you know, you can sort of interpret songs that you already know. Jazz is a, can be a template. That, that was sort of a new understanding for me. Like it was all so, it was a discovery. Everything about that song made me curious. The melody made me curious. When I started listening to really what those words were, that made me want to sort of embrace my own writing a little more. And so often I would replace those lyrics with my own long before I did this, you know, my current project. I would always just sort of make up my own lyrics in that same pattern because I thought it would be cool to sing something that really resonated with me things that really were my favorite things, you know. Jumping on something, swinging on playgrounds, hanging around. Like, it was probably really silly like that. (laughs) There was always something like that, things that I really like to do. So yeah, when I decided to do a Christmas project, I knew I wanted to record my favorite things. That had been on my mind for 20 years. These are a few of my favorite things. 
to, to finally sit down and record this song, it was the easiest thing to me because I felt like I've been thinking about this for so long. So it didn't take me long to sort of even rewriting the lyrics. That was like, I did it in the car on the way to the studio. Shoes with fat laces and oversized glasses Watching my people rise up from the ashes Sharing a smile with that guy on the train And I didn't have to think too hard because I think those items had been sort of running around my head on and off for the last 20 years. You know, whenever I sing this melody, I just immediately am transported back to my childhood. That just because the melody, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, they just created something so beautiful with that lilting melody. It just lilts like a, like, I don't know what lilts in nature. You know, <laughs> it just, it, look, it sounds like a stick figure just sort of becoming curvy all of a sudden. You know what I mean? It just sounds like air all of a sudden becoming a form. You know, it sounds like magic. And I and so when you sit at the piano and sing this, it's it's just liberating. It's it's just a lot of fun. I can't describe it any other way. <laughs> Cy Smith on the song that changed her life, My Favorite Things. Cy's new Christmas record is called Christmas in Cyberspace. You can stream it now. In New York City, you can see her live. She's performing with the trumpeter Chris Bodie every night at the Blue Note, right up until Christmas. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, uh, where we want to take this holiday opportunity to thank everybody who has made life for people who uh, live in and around MacArthur Park better. Folks like the L.A. Regional Food Bank, uh, the Dream Center, who are out here giving out food every week, LAMP, our friends at Art Division around the corner, all the folks at Charles White Elementary School, all, everybody out there who's uh, taking care of our friends and neighbors this holiday season and all year long. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows, Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. And one last thing, there are many, many, many interviews in our archive at MaximumFun.org, including conversations about the holidays with folks like Rob Halford of Judas Priest, Andy Richter from The Conan Show, Jane Lynch, The Polyphonic Spree, many more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Happy holidays. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. <laughs>